Father, we want to know you more. We want to know you better. The only place that we can do that is by looking in your word, and so we're here to do that. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to sing praises to you. We pray that it was fitting in your sight. Pray that each and every one of us here has a heart that is bent toward what you want and not what we want. If it's not, Lord, help us. Help us to change, help us to learn, help us to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I get the delightful privilege of seeing who forgot that we changed the time. You guys all have to look this way. <laughs> uh, but congratulations on getting up so early for church today. Right. Um, as Jeff said, we do have communion at the end of the service today. So if you want to um, grab the elements, if you haven't yet, please go ahead and do that. Um, I was at a nice and warm high school graduation Friday night. Anybody else had the delightful privilege of sitting through some of those that were supposed to be inside and outside and they wound up being inside? But I do want to mention we've got graduates. Uh, I want to make sure we congratulate them. If you see them around, Micah Bryant, I saw him, Sammy Raymond. Lydia Robertson and Michael Hendricks, these guys are all passing on to a next phase of their life. Um, they get to put high school in the rearview mirror. I don't know about you, but that was a pretty happy day for me. Uh, and so if you see them, definitely congratulate them. Um, give them your love. We are, I need to introduce myself. If you don't know who I am, my name's Steve. I'm on the elder team here at Hall Center Church. And... I'm also on the preaching team, and I get the privilege to be here with you today. David is not here today. He is. He's hiding right there. There he goes. He's got me. Are you serious? <laughs> I know. Well, I'm so glad you live close by. Boy, this... I, I was seeing Dorothy's uh, Instagram post yesterday. She's ready for this guy to get out of there. You know it. So, all right, David is here. Welcome. David's going to have some paternity leave here coming up, maybe in August. I'm just kidding. Uh, but I do want to do a quick uh, commercial for you next week. Guess who gets to come up here? and share with you, Ron Sargent's going to come up, and I'm excited, he's agreed to do it. I hear a rumor that there will be a paper bag involved. I hear a rumor, so we have hope, okay? We are in the book of Acts, witnesses to the end. And if you were here last week, and you went home after last week's sermon, and you said, I want to see what all this hubbub's about. Steve talked about the Celtics and how they were down 3 nothing, And they tied the series up at 3-3. Amazing. Who would have ever thought they could do that? And we hoped 
They could win the final game, didn't we? They got crushed. They got destroyed. The numbers say no NBA team has ever come back from 3-0 to ever win a playoff series. We still had hope. They dashed it. Against all the odds, we thought they could do it. We still had a hope. And so I, wanted, I do that by way of review of last week. Remember we talked about the word hope last week and how often we use it for things that's just like optimism or a wish. But when the Bible talks about hope, as we did last week, we have hope in God's promises. And the quote that I gave you from Packer was that Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. And we talked, if you recall, we talked about some hope suckers and some hope restorers. And if you want to go back and watch that, you can. Last week, we looked at Aeneas and Dorcas or Tabitha. We saw that God's love runs to the hopeless. And by way of review, I want to take you through the last few chapters where we've seen who God's love runs to. It ran to the rejected, the Samaritans, the far off, the Ethiopian, the worst of us, Saul, and the hopeless, Aeneas, who was bedridden for eight years, and Dorcas, who was dead. That's the train we've been on as we've been watching the gospel, the good news about Jesus, spread out of Jerusalem and go out into the world. And today, we're going to see that God's love runs to absolutely anyone. It's kind of neat. Um, and so I've titled today's sermon, The Best Laid Plan. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. And you like say, like, Steve, you're going to be in the whole chapter of Acts chapter 10? Yes, the whole chapter of Acts chapter 10. I know you can handle it. Um, and I want to make sure you, if you know Acts very well, Acts chapter 10 is the actual, um, what we're going to read today. And Acts chapter 11 recounts a bunch of what happens in today. And so Ron is going to cover a different angle of what we're going to see today next week. And so I'm all excited about that. But today's sermon titled, The Best Laid Plan. Have you ever had plans that just got blown up? Just let me tell you about mine, just the one that came to my mind. January 2nd, 1993. <laughs> Ron's, Ron's laughing because he was standing right here. I was standing in my lovely bride. She, I got the coolest person in the world to agree to marry me. I paid her a bunch of money, and she said yes. We got married right here on one of the coldest days of all time. We had a lovely ceremony. Everything worked just great. It was awesome. And, of course, what did I do? I planned just a wonderful honeymoon. We said we're going to go to Aruba. Aruba, everybody goes to Aruba for their honeymoon, right? And so what did I do? I said, you know what, Steve, you're not very good at planning things like that, so let's do what your grandparents do. Let's use a travel agent. And so I did. I called a travel agent, and I had the travel agent organize a honeymoon in Aruba for us. And we got married on January 2nd, 1993, and that night we went down to Boston and stayed because we had to be up at 4 o'clock in the morning to get into the gate so we could actually be on the beach at 10 a.m. Yeah, this, it was a wonderful plan. And so 
we got up, we had all our bags, and we went into the airport, and they checked us in, and they took our bags, and we had our tickets, and we sat down, and we, we kept sitting, and we sat, and it got to be like nine in the morning. No news. We had people so upset and mad, and we were just kind of sitting there, okay? And at 10 o'clock in the morning, they came and said, hey, everybody, we need you to come get your bags, please. We know you checked them in, but come get your bags. Okay, what are we going to do with it? Well, we're not sure, but just come get your bags. And so we got our bags, and now we have these huge bags, and we're in Logan Airport with nothing to do, no idea what's going on. We did not take off until 11.35 p.m. and arrived at the Bakuti Beach Resort in Aruba at 5 a.m., Finally, we're in Aruba and went to check into the hotel and they said, we don't have any record of a Robertson reservation here. Okay, so I say that because I really want us to own how bad our plans work out, right? Every once in a while they do, but we have to acknowledge that our plans don't always work out. And so today's point is, that God's plans always work. Always work. Ours don't. And his best for us is inside his plan. Okay? And, and, and I, there's some things we've got to own here today as we see this. And, and we're going to see it acted out in Acts 10. We're going to see um, how God actually works these things out. God is able to work his plan through any challenge, any of you or any ruler or any anything could ever try to bring against it. Okay? There is no one in the universe, in existence, that God's worried about messing up his plan, including you. And it's important to know that and own that, and we're going to see more of it today. So we're going to dive into the book of Acts. We're going to see, we have two visions, a meeting and a sermon in today's passage. And the first thing we see is vision number one. We're going to be in Acts 10, verses 1 through 8. If you've got your Bibles, follow along. It is going to be up on the screen. So I want you to remember that where we left Peter last week was in the house of a tanner. Simon the tanner, who by definition was ceremonially unclean because of his job of touching animal skins. And so Peter seems to be in a state of mind at the end of chapter 9 that would lead us to what we're going to see today in chapter 10. And so in any case, we now read Acts chapter 10. We have to remember that Jesus had given Peter the keys of the kingdom, and you can see that in Matthew 16. And we've already watched him use those keys, opening the kingdom, kingdom to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, and then to the Samaritans soon afterwards, and now he's going to use them again to open the kingdom to Gentiles by sharing the gospel and baptizing a guy named Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. So let's start reading. Verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, 
gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. And so we're going to camp here for just a minute. Cornelius, he was stationed at Caesarea. It was a garrison city. It was named after Caesar. And it was the administrative capital of the whole province of Judea. And uh, it was a great harbor that was actually built and dredged by Herod the Great. And so Luke introduces this guy as a centurion. A cohort was six centuries of men, so 600 men, and there was one person put in charge of each hundred, and Cornelius was one of them. Corresponds pretty closely to a captain or a company commander in our day. And Luke tells us he was devout, was generous, and and prayed a lot to God. We don't have a ton more information than that. Was he a Jewish proselyte? Had he had? We don't. It just doesn't tell us. We make no mistake that he was a Gentile, but we don't really know much more than what you actually see in verses one and two. And so it's the reality of what we see, though, is he still was a Gentile, and it's difficult for us to grasp how big the gulf was between the Jews on one hand and the Gentiles, even God-fearing Gentiles, on the other. And we need to be clear that we understand the, New Test- the Old Testament did not teach that kind of a divide. On the contrary, the Old Testament affirmed that God had a purpose for the Gentiles by choosing and blessing one family. He intended to bless all the families of the earth. We've studied a bunch of that in the last 12 months. So the Old Testament foretold the day when the Messiah would be the light to the nations. The nations would flow to God's house and God would pour out his spirit on all humankind. And we're going to see some of that today. The tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election of God's chosen people into one of favoritism. And that is not the same thing. Became loaded with racial pride and hatred. They despised the Gentiles as dogs and developed traditions that kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, even one that's God-fearing like Cornelius, or invite one into his home. A guy named Edersheim wrote a book called Jewish Social Life, and he said all familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden, and no pious Jew would have ever sat down at the table of a Gentile. And so it's important for us to understand that this is the entrenched prejudice that had to be overcome before Gentiles could be a part of the Christian community on equal terms with Jews. And before the church could become a truly multiracial, multicultural society, it was part of God's plan to make the gospel available to all people. And so the Jews and the Gentiles, we, we, we're going to see them. It's gonna, it's gonna, there's going to be some collisions. There's going to be some challenges. If you want to read how to deal with those challenges, Paul wrote a book called Romans that's entirely devoted to what that is, and I commend it to you. But let's get back to Cornelius and read verse 3. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, this is Cornelius, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. Sound familiar? Good. And said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. 
And so this is three in the afternoon. Cornelius has a vision, and an angel told him God has noticed his faithfulness. Let's look at verse 5. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And so we see the traditional, oh, an angel showed up. No one ever responds to an angel showing up with, hey, what's up, dude? It just doesn't happen. Um, the response to an angel showing up is falling on your face in terror. Interesting. Um, we see it in the story of Jesus' birth and other places. But Cornelius did what the angel told him and sent some men to get Peter. It's interesting to note the angel did not preach the gospel to the centurion. That was going to be Peter's privilege. So we have next, vision number two. That's in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 23. And so Cornelius' vision set the stage for what followed. And I want to make sure we understand the primary question in this passage is how God deals with Peter. How would he break down Peter's kind of deep-seated racial intolerance? Uh, so the principal subject of this chapter is not so much Cornelius' conversion, as important as it is, but really the conversion of Peter. And we're going to see that. So Peter gets a vision. God is working things out. And vision number two starts in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Verse 12, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, be careful if these words ever come out of your mouth, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Verse 16, this happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. You know what my mother would say, you must not really have been hungry. Um, but that's, that's neither here nor there. In any case, we see verse 17, it made him start thinking. Verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Do you see how God is working this all out? Verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, I really would love to know what that looked like. The Spirit said to him, Behold, 
Three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. <clears throat> thought Cornelius sent them. Just a note. Verse 21. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? Verse 22. And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And we get a sense of what's going on in verse 23. So he invited them in to be his guests. And so it's important to see what's happening. Peter has now invited Roman Gentiles to be his guests. God is orchestrating something huge. And so I want us to note how perfectly God's making things work with Cornelius and Peter. While Peter was praying and seeing his vision, the men from Cornelius approached the city. That's in 9 through 16. While Peter was perplexed about what he'd seen, they arrived at his house. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him the men were looking for him and he shouldn't hesitate to go with them. And when Peter went down and introduced himself to them, they explained to him the purpose of their visit. You can see God working all of this out. I love how the passage says the Spirit sent the men down to Peter. And so what we have next is a meeting in verses 23 to 33, a very important meeting. This meeting literally changed the course of human history. And so let's keep reading in verse 23. The next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And so later in the next chapter, we're going to find, when Peter recounts it, that this was a, a party of ten. There were three Gentiles from Cornelius, Peter, and six brothers from Joppa, which, if you recall, was where Dorcas was. And so Cornelius was expecting him, and look at what happened next. Verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Oops. Verse 26. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. So we can see that Cornelius was pretty receptive to what he'd seen in his visions, and he, he sent men to get Peter, and as Peter enters the house, he throws himself at his feet and worshipped, which we've seen a few times in the Bible when an angel shows up, and what does the angel always say? Ah, 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 ah. I am not the one to worship. God is the only one to worship. It was just as inappropriate with Peter as it was with any angel, since only God is to be worshipped. Peter made him get up, saying, I'm just a guy. I'm just a dude doing what I can. And so if Cornelius' act of worshipping Peter was not cool, which it wasn't, so according to Jewish tradition, Peter's act of entering a Gentile home was not cool. 
Peter even says as much in the very next verse, verse 28. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me, I want you to hear this as we read this, what Peter has now learned. You see that he was perplexed, but now he's sharing what he's learned. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent me. And so I, if you got, if you like to highlight in your Bible or note that phrase, I should not call any person common or unclean is a hinge point for the spread of the gospel. Whether consciously or unconsciously, Peter had just now denounced both extreme and opposite attitudes which human beings have towards each other. He'd come to see that it was entirely inappropriate either to worship somebody as divine, which Cornelius had tried to do with him, or to reject somebody as unclean, which he would previously have done to Cornelius. Peter refused both to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he were beneath him. Okay, so this, is, this is pretty monstrous revelation at this point in Scripture. But Peter is curious. He can say, why am I here? What am I doing here? Verse 30, and Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. Verse 33, so I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here. He brought all his friends and relatives in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so Cornelius says, you're here because I sent for you. I sent for you because an angel told me to, and we want to hear from you. And we're here in the presence of God. He's working a plan. And so for Cornelius, it's a pretty remarkable acknowledgement that they were in God's presence, that Peter was to be the bearer of God's word to them. and They were all ready and open to listen to it. No preacher could really ask for a better setup. And it's a great setup for a different sermon. We're going to see it in the next nine or so verses. A different sermon. Steve, why a different sermon? Well, because to date, the sermons that Peter has preached, and you can go back through Acts and take a look at them, have been to a Jewish audience, and they're pretty redundant. They say the same thing. They say, you guys killed Jesus, but he still forgave you. Repent. This one's a little different. Some very common themes, but the previous sermons have been to a Jewish audience, and this is to a Gentile audience. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, again, we're going to see Peter learning. 
Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He means that God's attitude to people is not determined by any external criteria, such as their appearance, their race, their nationality, or class. Verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. There's a timeline that he can tell these people, you know this, Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, we often forget how popular John's message was, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Verse 39, Paul says, I mean, excuse me, Peter says, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Peter ends, verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. I love how Peter goes, go check out the Old Testament. They're all pointing to Jesus. Whoever believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And if you're looking for more words to highlight in your Bible, the one in this particular passage is everyone. Bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And so the result of God's visions... Hopefully you're seeing God orchestrates this. He gave the vision to Cornelius. He gave a vision to Peter. He got them to meet, and the gospel was preached, and it resulted in changed lives in the last few verses of our passage today. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. And so, again, hopefully you're hearing what I want our focus to be on this account today. I want you to hear and see what God put together. This is not some random set of circumstances that Luke is documenting for us. 
This is God orchestrating people and events to accomplish the mission of the spread of the good news to all people. And so I want us to acknowledge the truth we started with. God's plans always work. Ours don't. His best for us is inside his plan. There is no room for us in here to go, well, what if Peter had said, um, you know what? <laughs> really not a fan of that food. Uh, and those guys look weird. I'm not going. You think the gospel wouldn't have reached the Gentiles? No. Okay. Peter got to be a part of what God was doing. And so we look at Peter and Cornelius and we go, wow, I would love for God to lead me like that. I'm in the middle of a prayer and I get a vision of, or an angel comes and terrifies the living daylights. That's cool. Whatever it takes. Let me know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'd love for him to say, as he did to Cornelius, just go do this. Or a vision for Peter. Men are coming, go with them. Pretty nice. And don't we? We like things written down. Well, guess what? He doesn't always lead us like that. And as David has made a point over and over again, the book of Acts is very much a highlight reel of a lot of um, history. But God doesn't always give us visions and doesn't tell us super clearly like that what to do. Even so, Paul tells us this in Ephesians 5.17. He says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And I can say, well, Cornelius knew what the Lord's will was. It was pretty clear. Paul's saying, you understand what the Lord's will is. Don't be foolish. Don't be dumb. Understand what the Lord's will is. And so how do we get to his best for us? How do we know when we are working inside his plan and not our own? Well, today's passage gives us some indicators so I've just got a couple points for us, and there's obviously, as usual, lots more than just what I've come up with here, but I think I've got some highlights. How do we know God's best? The first one, pray. Why do I say that? It's pretty obvious from today's passage, both the men that were led to this meeting that changed the course of human history, what were they both doing when they were led? They were both praying. And I can just say we cannot expect to be led by God if we don't ever speak to him. Prayer brings perspective. It helps us understand the big picture. It gets you out of the weeds. It helps to reorient you to where you really are. Tim Keller puts it really simply in terms of just what I think we need for today. The basic purpose of prayer, he says, is not to bend God's will to mine, but to mold my will into his. Want to know what God's best for you is? Prayer is a big part of it. And can I say it this way? If you find that you are not chasing prayer... Is it possible that you are just a little bit optimistic about your own plans? 
and don't care really about what God's best is for you, I can tell you that is the case with me. And so not only do we need to be talking to God, but he needs to be talking to us. And so you knew this was coming. We need to know his word well enough that we can think biblically. We cannot expect to be led by God if we aren't speaking to him. And we certainly can't expect to be led by God if we're not listening to him. God has a comprehensive, foreordained purpose and plan for all of human history. From the greatest events to the smallest, and that includes intentions for your life and the life of every human being, beyond a doubt, the Bible is clear about that. J.I. Packer says this, he says, to know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless, but it stabilizes the saints. And so to think biblically is to have a strong understanding of God's providence, his total purposive control in all things. David and I have talked about it quite a bit because it is at a foundation for understanding God's word. That said, many of us have this idea that his intention, once you become a Christian, is comparable to an itinerary, itinerary drawn up by a travel agent for you, where everything depends on you being in the right time, and in the right place, in the right time, to board this plane or train or bus and meet somebody to do whatever. And we have this idea that the itinerary is ruined once you miss one planned connection. Ooh, and this is an incredibly sad misconception of why, number one, it's not thinking biblically. Nothing in Scripture supports this idea that there's this itinerary that if you don't do it, my God is, he's just not going to be that successful. Nowhere do we see God's plan being thwarted because someone missed a connection. Second, it assumes that God's plans are dependent on our execution. If that's what you think, that is well worthy of repentance today. We have more examples than we can count of God's purposes being accomplished through utter buffoons in God's word. Jacob fooling his father with the birthright, Moses killing an Egyptian, Peter's denial of, you just go and go and go and go and go. We need to not act like God's plans are dependent on us. Another quote from Packer, the scriptures are the lifeline God throws us in order to ensure he and we stay connected while the rescue is in process. We need to think biblically. And one way I would propose to you to think biblically is to the third one, focus on now. Focus on now. James 4.13. Close your eyes and think about it or turn to it quickly if you can. Got a couple of verses here. James says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Verse 14, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist 
that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I hope that gives you hope. Instead, verse 15 of James 4, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so I've put it this way many times. God's best for you has more to do with the next five minutes of your life than it does the next five years. And what does God ask of us in the next five minutes? You all know the answer. Love. Love others. Put others first. Encourage others. Give to others. Teach others. Honor others. Remember when Jesus was asked what's the most important commandment? He said, love God. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know what to do with the next five minutes? He's told us. And if you take your life in small chunks and seek out how God would have you love those around you, I guarantee the next five years will work itself out. And so there's a ton here of sermons and whatnot, but there's only one way to do that. There's only one way for us to accomplish that, and that's our fourth way to know God's best. Remember grace. Remember grace. Grace. What is it? Let me just put it this way. For those of us that have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we can say this, my sin in the past, forgiven, and gone. Gone. My current struggles, completely covered. My future failures, every dumb, stupid thing I do to hurt others, and when I make mistakes, every one of my future failures is paid in full by the matchless grace that we find in the cross of Christ. Thank you, music team, for the songs we got to sing to prepare us for that. It's all covered. And if you're not living in that, your ability to extend that grace and that love to others is going to be limited. When God looks at me, when he looks at you, when he looks at someone who said, I cannot save myself and has sought Jesus out to save him, God does not see my mess. He doesn't. He sees the righteousness of his son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You, and I know a bunch of you, becoming the righteousness of God is lunacy. It's called grace. It's called grace. So I love how this takes us to the celebration of communion. I'm going to go ahead and grab the elements. This is something that Jesus himself commanded us to do regularly. Why? Because we need to be constantly reminded about God's grace, God's best. And so as we start this small ceremony, this small time of remembrance, I want to make sure we kind of wrap up where we were. This is not about God getting your best. This is about you getting God's best. Then you can offer him yours. Though we never have and are unable to honor God as we should, in his love for us, he gave his very best and most valuable, the only thing he had only one of, his 
Son. In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's best is Jesus, and we need to constantly be reminded of that. John 6.51, just a couple chapters after the John 3.16, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And this is Jesus pointing to the gift that he was going to give to us on the cross. And at the Last Supper, the Bible tells us that when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Matthew 26, 28, as you get the cup ready. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins. And as we've noted, it's past, present, and future. And Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Singers and musicians can go ahead and come on up. I'd like to pray just for a moment. Heavenly Father, each and every one of us can confess to you right now that we get hectic about our own plans about our own things that we want, about the way we want things to work out. And so often, we simply leave you out of the picture. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for not wanting your best. We just want what we want, what we think will make us happy in the moment. May each one of us have been challenged today to know that you are the one orchestrating all things and that we get the immense privilege to be a part of the plan that you're executing to bring the gospel to all nations. And so help us to love, help us to learn, help us to pray, and help us to embrace grace at each and every turn. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with a song. I want to make sure we go back to this thought. If you leave today, this is the thought I want you to work with. God's plans always work. Yours don't. Ours don't. His best for us is inside his plan, and inside his plan is freedom. Galatians 5.1 says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And Jesus himself in John 8 said, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so this song that we're going to sing is an opportunity for us to celebrate God's best. We're going to sing finally free all hope. All hope is found in your mercy. You paid the price. Now I'm finally free. Let's stand and sing.